Almighty God, arise, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Our God, we call upon You in our sorrow and in our frustration. We look at our society and it appears as if You are standing very far off at a distance. And we as Your people are tempted to wonder why You hide Yourself in times of trouble. But then we read Your Word and we remember that You do not forget. That You see all and that You are in control. And we remember that You are our God even if our nation has ignored You. So we call upon You along with the psalmist. Arise, O Lord. We cry to You. It seems as if evil is winning out. And Lord, we do not look outside our world and see them as wicked and ourselves free from blame. Because even in our own lives, sin keeps winning the battles. We are like Paul who said that he found it to be a law that when he wanted to do right, evil lies close at hand, making us captive to sin, causing us to cry out what wretched people we are. And we ask God, that You would have mercy on us, for we are sinners, captives to sin, even though we are free in Christ. But God, even as we confess our own sin, we ask that You would lift up Your hand and forget not the afflicted. Lord, Help us to remember that You are always present, that You are never far off. In fact, God, I pray that You would give us the character of those who are always near to You. Give us, because of our nearness to You, the radiance of holiness, the joy of holiness, the peace of holiness. And help us because we are Your children. And You do not forget the afflicted. Help us not to forget those who are hurting. Be not far off from us. Be not far off from our nation. Lord, bring revival. Lord, bring truth. Lord, bring Your Gospel to bear upon those who are in authority. Um, over our nation, over our communities. Lord, be with those uh, who are authorities in their own homes. Bring the Gospel to bear, God. And Lord, we do pray that You would be with that uh, small and impoverished 
community of White Swan out in Washington State. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you do not yet have your Bibles open to 2 Kings chapter 8, if you would open your Bibles. As Tim read verses 1 through 6, so now I have the joy and the responsibility of proclaiming God's Word. This week, uh, our team saw poverty and desperation, frankly, like I've never seen in my life. I've been to Uganda three times, twice within three years of the end of the Civil War, but had ravaged that country for nearly 15 years. And in Uganda, I've been in homes where the homes were nothing more than sticks that were tied together with mud thrown up to be the walls of the home. Uh, I've met hundreds of children in Uganda that wore clothes that were so torn and so well used that they looked like nothing more than rags. But in Uganda, the soil is rich and uh, the rain is plentiful. And I think if you planted a shoe in the ground, another one might sprout. Everything is, the, the ground is so fertile. Uh, I understand why Winston Churchill called Uganda the Pearl of Africa. And so, um, regardless of the poverty, the families always have food. In fact, most of the mud huts that I went into were surrounded by banana trees so that you only needed to walk out the door to have a nice, fresh snack. And frankly, the bananas are nothing like you have ever had here in the United States. They've never been as sweet as those bananas in Uganda. And pineapples, they taste like pine, like a pineapple upside down cake. And in Uganda, the, friend, the family structure is not only sound, but it is healthy. One generation cares for the next. One generation teaches the next generation how to parent, how to exercise discipline, how to prosper in happiness even when there is no physical wealth. Ugandans as a people are a joy to be around because they live joyfully. But in the Yakima nation, there is very little joy. Desperation and hopelessness marks their lives. Their existence, by their own admission, is defined by victimization. They see themselves as victims of dishonest treaties, They see themselves as victims of lost generations which resulted from the forced breakup of the family due to the boarding schools in the 1800s and and early 1900s. They see themselves as victims due to the loss of their traditions and heritage. And they see themselves as victims of the dysfunction that has grown into an expected way of life. They may have a little more money 
in little better houses than the people in Uganda. But the poverty and desperation is much, much greater. Here's some statistics. 80% of the children in, uh, on the Yakima Reservation are subject to some form of physical or sexual abuse before the age of 14. The dropout rate from high school is nearly 65%. That percentage is actually going down the last two or three years. We heard uh, about um, that from uh, many of the Yakima people. They are very proud that that is lowering somewhat from 65%. Unemployment can be as high as 70% on the reservation. Um, nearly 80% of the children are born with some form of disability that uh, it might be slight, it might be greater in some cases. Um, and those disabilities come from the uh, drug and alcohol abuse that the parents are um, have uh, during the pregnancy the moms have during the pregnancy. Hope Fellowship has to supply the children who come to the ministry with a meal every time that they minister to the children. They came in the morning for the, uh, the little vacation Bible school that Caitlin worked in. They fed the children. They came back uh, in the afternoon for the, the kids' club. We fed them a snack. Some of the children, the homes are so dysfunctional that the uh, church has given these children little backpacks and give them food that even a three or four year old can fix on their own, like snacks, crackers and cheese and things like that, and have taught their children or taught the children to how to hide the the, the food and the backpack uh, in their home so that the adults won't take it and eat it. Um we saw these statistics in action this week. We met these children. We heard some of these stories from the children themselves. But we also saw children learning how to hope in God in the midst of the prevailing poverty and desperation. Now obviously, we are not suffering with the same desperation and poverty. But truth be told, we too struggle to hope in God. We frequently fail to believe uh, God when we're faced with hardship and difficulty. We take our eyes off of God. We take our eyes off of His promises. We put them on ourselves and on our own troubles. Our passage this morning calls us to an unwavering faith in God. Our passage calls us to a sacrificial faith in God. Our passage calls us to a transforming faith in God. So I want you this morning to be prepared to believe God this morning regardless of whatever is happening in your lives. Chapter 8 seems like a rather abrupt change from the siege and salvation of Samaria that we were looking at in chapter 7. So we go from the siege and the salvation of Samaria, the city of Samaria, 
to Elisha now in chapter 8 telling a woman to leave her home and her possessions to escape a famine that is coming upon the land. You'll recall that we met this woman earlier. We met her in, in 2 Kings chapter 4 when Elisha raised her child back to life when he had died. We saw that she was faithful to God. And she was also a benefactor to Elisha. She built him a little house so that he could stay there when he was passing through. And so God, being faithful to her, used Elisha to warn her of the famine that was coming. It was very kind of God to warn her of the famine. But He could have done any number of things to save this woman from this famine that would not involve her leaving her land and leaving her possessions. We might even speculate that He didn't need to send a famine in the first place. We might be tempted to second-guess God. God, why didn't You do this instead of this? But in looking at the passage... The woman did not speculate why God sent a famine. She didn't speculate why He commanded her to leave her land and her possessions. So we would do well not to speculate either. God, through Elisha, told this woman to arise, depart her household, and sojourn wherever she could find because a famine was coming upon the land. And it would last for seven years. So what did the woman do? Did she question God? Did she second guess Him? No. The woman arose and as the passage says in verse 2, she did according to the word of the man of God. How would you do if God said to you, for seven years leave all your possessions Leave your home. Leave everything that you've been accustomed to. Would you be able to do it? Would you be able to do it without complaint? Would you be able to do it without protesting to God? You do know one day that you will leave all your possessions. That one day... All of us will leave this earth and we will leave every possession, everything we treasure, and we'll leave it all behind. You know, I heard a story one time about a famous multimillionaire who died suddenly. And everyone was stunned. This man wasn't supposed to die. And so someone asked a logical question as they thought about his children. They asked, how much did he leave behind? And the answer came back, he left it all behind. Every one of us will leave everything all behind. So don't let considerations about your possessions or about your stuff keep you from obeying God's commands and living faithfully to Him. Keep a light touch on your possessions. doesn't mean that you can't enjoy them. 
as we were going down, driving down the road in uh, the Yakima Nation, we kept seeing all these old, dilapidated cars that were broken down, hadn't been driven in years. And uh, Jim Belisario would say, man, if he fixed that car up, it'd be worth $60,000. Or this car, boy, this is a classic. And uh, they had broken down and had been sitting there for decades. And, uh, you know, if Jim Belisario could get his hands on him, he would enjoy those cars. I'm sure he would. But, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying those cars. But whatever we have, our stuff, our treasures, keep a light hold on it. Jesus said, where your treasure or um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I can give you a exhortation after exhortation to hold earthly possessions with a very light hand and to keep God's faithfulness as a higher consideration than anything we have here on earth. You know what? Truth be told, it's a very hard thing to do. So let me remind you that God is very faithful to His people. He was faithful to this woman in this passage and He will be faithful to you as well. And I know you believe it. But then why don't we act upon it? Why don't we trust God with the way we treat our possessions? Why don't we trust God when life hits a bumpy spot? In other words, will we be like this woman who was able to leave her land, her possessions, leave even her nation for seven years, leave it all behind because God had told her to obey His Word? You know, I think we struggle to act upon God's faithfulness because we struggle with our own faithfulness to God. We act unfaithfully toward God when we sin, so then we quietly think in our hearts that God is only going to act angrily toward us rather than loving us with His faithfulness. Instead of acting in faithfulness towards God, we act in slavish fear and anxiety. And trusting God somehow gets lost in the mix Listen, this poor woman in our passage, she was just like a sinner, or she was a sinner just like you and like me. She struggled in her faithfulness to God because she sinned against God just like we do. But she understood that God loved her in spite of her sin. I don't know how much she understood about the doctrine of the atonement but she understood that God had forgiven her sins. And therefore, her sins could not stand in the way of God's love for her. And the same goes for you. Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. They have been wiped away. They have been forgiven. They have been tread underfoot. They have been tossed behind God's back. They have been thrown as far as the east is from the west. They are remembered no more. God only acts 
in love towards you who are you who are his who are his children. Sometimes he lovingly disciplines us. Sometimes he lovingly tests our faith. But he never, ever, ever acts in retribution or in a penalizing manner towards you who are His children. He always acts in pure and utter goodness towards you. You can trust Him no matter what. And this is what we see from this woman. Elisha says, a famine is coming. Leave your possessions. Leave your land. Leave your home for seven years. And go to another place. And she does it. I I speculate that if she was questioning God's love for her in her heart, she might not be willing to have left her home. I think about Abraham, who was willing to sacrifice his son. If he did not know that God loved him, if if he did not know that God loved his son, I don't think Abraham would have been willing to pick up that knife and be willing to to jam it down into his his son's heart. But because he loved God, or rather, I take that back, because he knew that God loved him, he knew that he could trust God. So the same with this woman, and the same for us. Wherever you're at, whatever your circumstances, God loves you. You can trust Him. Well, seven years passed while the famine persisted in Israel. After the famine ended, the woman then returned to her home. But upon returning to her home, she found out that some squatters had moved in. She found out that uh, someone else was living in her house on her land. So she went to the king to appeal to him for her house and her land. Verse 4 tells us that the very moment the woman arrived to appeal to the king, the king was talking with Elisha's servant Gehazi. And the king said to Gehazi, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. So then Gehazi proceeded to tell him these stories. Now look with me at verse 5. In verse 5, it says, as he's telling the king these stories about his master Elisha, And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had raised to life appeared to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And the king was so pleased with her timely appearance that He restored her home, He restored her land, and He even restored all the produce of the field from the day she left until the day she returned and appeared before Him. You know, this is one of those God moments. God 
has to be involved. It's just too big a coincidence. Even the king is able to recognize this and he gets caught up in the moment. You know, I've had several of those God moments. I imagine you have as well. Uh, I got food poisoning in Uganda. This is going back 23, 20, 26 years ago now. And uh, Dr. Krabendam had these these conferences planned all over the country. None of them were in Uganda, so he did what the kingdom of God would dictate that he should do. He's going out toward the kingdom. He went out to his conferences, left me all by myself in Kampala in a guest house. And he said, when you get to feeling better, here's an address of this pastor down in Kampala. You find him and he'll get you... Um, get you going with some ministry. He'll do, let you do some street preaching. So I laid in bed for a couple of days. You know, I'd come halfway around the world to preach the gospel. I still wasn't uh, quite well yet, but I decided I'm going to go and I'm going to find this pastor. I'm going to do some preaching. So I wandered out into the city of Kampala all by myself. Uh, 26 years ago in Kampala, no one, no ordinary citizen had a, had a telephone. They had, the Civil War had been so long and so uh, protracted that everything was kind of in a shambles. Uh, there were no real street signs. There was no map that I could find. But I had this address and I thought, I'll give it a shot. So I'll wander down into Kampala. Kampala is a city of one million people. I'm walking around trying to figure out how I can find this address in downtown Kampala when all of a sudden I hear some this, this voice calling out, Weasley! Weasley! And I turned around and it was Emmy Malundo. A uh, an associate of Dr. Kravendam that I had met the week earlier. He was coming out of a store, and I stood out. I'm the only Mzungu white person, you know, uh, on the street. And so he was calling out to me, and uh, he ended up taking me to this address. So, which was all the way on the other side of town. And that was a God moment. God was looking after me. Another God moment was when my father had his heart attack about five years ago. I went to Atlanta to see him uh, in the hospital. And uh, the head of the nursing department in the ICU where my dad was, was Brent Robinson. I've mentioned Brent Robinson's name from this pulpit several times. He was the guy who was my RA who would come up to my room at night and say to uh, Jeff um, Hughes and, and myself, uh, your mom would just be ashamed, or your moms would be ashamed if they knew you were here uh, at college and not reading your Bible, and he would read the Bible to us. And so uh, I walk into this hospital, and I hear this name from the past. I had not talked to him since my sophomore year in college. And when he walked around the corner, the name matched the face. It was Brent who led me to Christ. And uh, we had not talked and I told him I'd you know, remained faithful to Christ and that I had become a pastor and he started weeping deeply. And what had happened was his sister had just died and he was struggling in his own faith 
And I ended up being the God moment for him to remind him how faithful God is. And I could go on and on, but uh, in the interest of time, I'll mention only one more God moment. This morning, I got up and I came to church to preach. That's a God moment. God was involved. If God had not ordained that I would get up out of bed, I wouldn't have gotten up out of bed. I might have died in my sleep. Could have had an accident on the way here. God ordained that I be here. In other words, it's a God moment. Our God is sovereign. You are here this morning because God is sovereign and He ordained that you be here this morning. You are sitting here in church hearing the Word proclaimed this morning because God ordained in eternity past that this would be where you would be. He is the author of every decision, every action, every accident, quote-unquote, that has brought you to this moment, yet without being the author of sin. You say, well, how does that work? Well, that's another sermon for another time. He's the author of all of your future moments. Every moment is a God moment because He is involved and He is sovereign. Your life is in His hands. He loves you. In other words, you can trust Him no matter what. I have one issue that in the text that we need to address before I close the sermon. Did you think it odd that Gehazi appears in verse 4? If you will remember our sermon from a few chapters back in 2 Kings chapter 5, where Elisha healed Naaman from, uh, from his disease, you might remember, or from his uh, leprosy, you might remember that Gehazi showed himself to love riches more than he loved God. And he chose to cheat Naaman, even though God was teaching Naaman about God's grace. So Elisha cursed Gehazi with leprosy. And so it would be strange that Gehazi would be appearing before the king if he has leprosy. Well, he would not be appearing before the king if he had leprosy. And so it's obvious that the author of 2 Kings has purposefully recorded this story that we read in 2 Kings, out of, uh, 2 Kings 8. He's, re- he's recorded it out of chronological order. Why would he do that? Well, the answer is very simple. 2 Kings is structured not to simply give us a history of Israel, but rather to cause us to be forced to respond to God's grace. All the way through 2 Kings, we picked up with the life of Elisha in, in chapter 2. And every time, every, every sermon, we've, been, we've come face to face with God's grace. And we've had to respond. Am I going to believe God? Am I going to be faithful to God? Am I going to be 100% obedient to God? Or am I only going to be 95% obedient, which is actual disobedience? And so this question keeps coming up over and over. And so he wanted to bring it up again, so he he brought it up out of chronological order because his goal is that we would trust God. 
And so He brings this woman before us who left all her possessions, left her home, left her land for seven years to obey the Word of the Lord. And He brings it up to show contrast with King Jehoram who only has a fleeting faith. How do we know his faith is, his faith, the king's faith is only fleeting? Because the author has already given us a picture of King Jehoram from later in his life. He, he, he structured it so that we got to see that his faith was really false faith earlier. So when we see him get interested in Elisha's um, great miracles, or when we see him impressed by the timing of the woman coming in at this particular moment, we know that it's only fleeting, that he remains unchanged. He remains unconverted. He ultimately wants to be the king of Israel and the king of his own life. He will not allow the king of kings to rule over him. He will give God glory only so far as he doesn't have to bow his life to God. And King Jehoram serves as a warning for us. One can recognize something of the power and pull of the Gospel without embracing the Gospel. There is a vast chasm between being charmed by the Gospel and being converted by the Gospel. Many are curious about God without being committed to Him. Many are attracted to Jesus but refuse to be submissive to Him. It was really illustrated to me this week as um, Sacred Road Ministries and Hope Fellowship is out doing all these great things in the Indian community. And the community loves the church. And they speak um, glowingly of God. But it's clear that the community doesn't love God or trust themselves to God. The, the church service is filled with children. And the parents are home sleeping, sleeping off a hangover. Many of the Indians on the Yakima Reservation are attracted to Jesus, but few are submissive to Him. And it's the same everywhere. It's probably true in this room right now. Maybe some of you are willing to name Jesus as your Savior and say, Lord, Lord, but find out on the Day of Judgment that you've never known Him and that you've never been known by Him. So I want to call us all to faith in Jesus Christ. Trust Him implicitly. Trust Him fully. Trust Him without question. Jesus Christ left heaven. He came here to this earth walked on this earth 33 years so that He would go to that awful cross. He submitted to the cross and He rose from the dead in order that we might submit ourselves to Him in faith and trust and be saved from our sins 
and become children of God. Trust Him today if you've never trusted Him before. Trust Him today if you've trusted Him for many, many years. Because you can trust Him. Because He loves you and He's sovereign. Let's pray together. Almighty God, renew our faith and trust in You. Lord, our hearts are slippery things. Lord, we we struggle to trust You when difficulty comes. Lord, we take our eyes off of You and put them on ourselves. Lord, help us to remember how much You love us. And help us to trust You in response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.